Hello, everybody. This is Pat O'Connor, president of Minor League Baseball, and you're listening to After Hours, hosted by my good friend, Brandon After. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another episode of After Hours, a minor league baseball podcast. I'm your host, Brandon After. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a show where we dive into the business of minor league baseball. It's been a lot of fun so far. I worked in the industry of minor league baseball for nearly a decade, and I don't work in it anymore, but still maintain a really true passion for it. So I decided to start a podcast about it. And now we are over 20 episodes in, and it's really been great. And hopefully that continues with this installment before we get into the guest. Please make sure that you are subscribed and following the podcast. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor.fm, and any other of your favorite podcast platforms. You can also follow along on Twitter at AfterHoursPod, and it can be found on Facebook as well. So for this episode, I'm going to be joined once again by MILB.com's Ben Hill, the promo guy in minor league baseball. I was lucky enough to have Ben on to kick off this podcast in the first episode prior to the 2019 season, so happy to have him back on the show. We discussed some of the highlights of his road trips from 2019, focusing on the new ballparks in Fayetteville, Amarillo, and Las Vegas, while also talking about the final season in Potomac for the Potomac Nationals and where they will be headed for the 2020 campaign and beyond. After that, we also go through a number of the teams preparing to rebrand ahead of the 2020 season. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with MILB.com's Ben Hill in the latest episode of After Hours, a minor league baseball podcast. Welcome back into this episode of After Hours, a minor league baseball podcast. And right now, I'm very happy to be joined by my friend and MILB.com's Ben Hill. He's been covering the business and culture of minor league baseball since 2005. I had that as your position since the last time we did this. So I got it right this time, Ben. Welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. And uh, yeah, I guess I've been writing about minor league baseball in some form since 2005. I would say the business and culture you know, evolved and matured yeah. and grew more and more refined uh, over the years, like a fine wine. Have you grown and matured over the years, though? No, I'm the opposite. I'm <laughs> reverting back to infancy with each passing day. It's the circle of life, right? That's what it's people really... mean when they say the circle of life. Or Benjamin Button. I'm pretty sure that's what that movie was based on, aging the opposite direction. Really? I thought it was just about a guy who collected buttons. Yeah, well, you know, I I only saw the previews, so I got what I could from that one. But anyway, back to the topic on hand. You were my first guest once I rebranded this podcast into more of a minor league baseball niche. And uh, we talked a lot about rebranding and how much of a trend that it's become. And it really continued in 2019 as the rebrands and the new ballparks really helped minor league baseball attendance-wise. A 2.6% increase in total attendance from 2018 to 19, which is the biggest single-year increase since 2006 and 2007. So anything you can 
can say about that just to start things off? Uh, well, one, I'd say the Mexican League had a lot to do with it, which <laughs> I think kind of got overlooked a little bit in the analyses. But um, I think the second part was um, uh, absolutely uh, new ballparks. I mean, <laughs> as is the case, um, obviously, almost in, all, in almost all cases, a new ballpark is going to result in an increase in attendance. And that increase will often be very dramatic because those new ballparks often replace, you know, underperforming locations. So um, I did a story about that, how you just look at the new ballparks that opened in 2019, as well as the two pre-existing ballparks that opened that uh, hosted teams at different levels. Right. Um, you know, that was a big part of the attendance as well, just to those five ballparks. <laughs> so you had a, another eventful season in 2019 doing a lot of your road trips. What we'll do, we'll do a little bit of an abridged version since you made so many stops. I decided that we would highlight the teams that you visited for the first time or first time as a new team. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll start off with Fayetteville. Just started the 2019 season as the Fayetteville Woodpeckers in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And in their inaugural season, they ended up averaging just over 3,600 with regard to attendance behind the usual Carolina League powerhouses in Wilmington, Winston-Salem, and Frederick. So what were your uh, early impressions of Fayetteville and, and how they might be able to grow on a pretty strong first season for their debut in the Carolina League? Yeah, well, talking about attendance gains, um, yeah, the Woodpeckers yeah, drew decently for sure. Uh, but that's a huge attendance game again over the franchise they replaced because that was the Bowie's Creek Astros, yeah. who uh, were very much a stopgap solution while the new ballpark was being built in Fayetteville. And that was an atmosphere, you know, on um, the campus of Campbell University. Um, it, they basically had an environment in those games to just open up the gate. Yeah. Maybe a hundred people would come in. So uh, obviously, big attendance game, moving, moving, becoming really an actual franchise and an actual team with actual operations and branding and the whole nine yards. But uh, yeah, really nice ballpark, um, Segra Stadium. Um, you know, corporate naming sponsor, and I can't remember offhand what Segra does, but right. uh, they got the name of the ballpark. And well, they're um, not paying you; they're paying them. So I think yeah, exactly. Segra, if you want to throw some cash my way, I will uh, tout your services you've said, whatever you've said it three times now so that should be three times however they how much they pay you per second. yeah yeah hey well these are all on the house yeah uh for right now but um yeah interesting ballpark in uh that it's in downtown Fayetteville and, and built in a really small footprint so you really feel like you're nestled in in that ballpark right and there's actually uh train tracks on two sides of the stadium um like running down the third base side i mean you can look just on the, if you're on the third base concourse and you just look over the fence at the third base side, I mean, there's a uh, platform there for Amtrak passengers oh, wow. uh, right there. So those trains go by and then uh, off in the outfield, uh, there's a different track and uh, that one is more freight trains, cargo and, you know, Fayetteville being the home of Fort Bragg. Um, you know, there's like troop transport trains and military trans military cargo being transported. So to me, that was a big element of the ballpark It's just throughout the evening. You could have trains going by on one or two, you know, either one or two right. sides of the stadium, um, which to me added to the ambience. Yeah, I remember Very I spoke to I spoke to their broadcaster, Matt Sabatis, earlier in the season. I can't remember if it was prior to them starting or within the first couple of months. And he mentioned how much of the military influence they had with regard to groups and, and how they influence some of their promotional events because of Fort Bragg being so close. Yeah, I mean, you can't really talk about Fayetteville as a city without 
tying in the military to that because so much of the population there are either active duty or retired personnel, you know, people who had been assigned there and just stayed in the area afterwards. Right. So you'd be hard pressed to find anywhere in the country where there's a greater proportion of, uh, you know, of, of either active duty or retired military. So of course that's a big part of the branding. I mean, woodpeckers, you don't think of the woodpeckers when you think of the military, but even that is tied into Fort Bragg because a lot of woodpeckers uh, actually live on Fort Bragg in protected habitats and it's kind of an interesting aspect of the brand name. Um, and, and it's funny because when that first came about, there was a lot of tension because Fort Bragg had to you know, close down a lot of their training areas in order to uh, conserve this federally protected woodpecker habitat. Hmm. And then that kind of became a controversial thing. Uh, where you know a lot of people were anti woodpecker because they were, uh, you know, kind of hindering the operations at Fort Bragg. But you know, I think over as time has passed, uh, the woodpeckers have become appreciated. What's minor league baseball big... without a little bit of controversy, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a it's an interesting backstory, and I think it's a pretty cool branding. You know, uh, being unique and something you remember. Uh, you know, without going too far off the rails. Um, but yeah, I, I like the branding and I thought the team did a really good job this year. I was really impressed with the front office when I went just the overall operation, you know, a lot of passion for, uh, you know, the, the products they were putting out there every night. Uh, it was definitely the loudest ballpark I've ever attended, hmm. um, which I think they were kind of going for that more, more of an arena style right. energy to keep like the energy up and this kind of, you know, military atmosphere, which is a little more gung ho and, aggressive uh so it might work for that market as a writer you know he's trying to take down notes and interview people and stuff yeah. sometimes i was like boy oh boy guys turn it down a little bit or at least like relax you know it was one of those atmospheres where you know between pitches sound effect you know they, yeah. they really kept it pumping but they were good at it they did a good job with it uh but definitely uh Never a dull moment uh, from the game operations side. But as I said, I think the, the front office is doing a great job. And and, and there was, seemed to be a real passion for the team and the community, you know, who had never seen something like this before. There had right. been minor league baseball in Fayetteville. I mean, not too long ago, the Cape Fear Crocs uh, relocated in the early 2000s. But, you know, there had never been minor league baseball as seen in with at Segra Stadium just right. in terms of – uh, you know, a new ballpark, because you compare that to J.P. Riddle Stadium, the old ballpark, and it's night and day. So I think there's a lot of passion uh, for the product. And uh, as far as I, I could tell, they, I think they did a really good job in their inaugural season. And uh, I think they can continue that pace for the time being. If there are people listening to this for the first time, they may not know that you actually have celiac disease. So it prevents you from being able to eat some things within ballparks. But was there anything from you or your designated eater for that stop that you can recall being a highlight from Fayetteville? Well, for me, you know, it is kind of hard to find, uh, you know, gluten-free items at a minor league ballpark, at least when it comes to very substantial, you know, more main course type ballpark food. And they had a Philly cheesesteak nachos, which are gluten free and excellent, and the sort of thing I would love to see offered at ballparks across the country. Right. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, a lot of not nothing like earth shattering, like wow, this is a signature food item you can't get anywhere else. But they were doing well, especially with the hot dogs. You know, some mac and cheese, bacon hot dogs, and Ooh. things of that nature. Mm. Uh, a lot of people walking around uh, with the beer bats. I don't know if you've seen those, but those uh, very long vertical. Uh, beer that you get in a replica bat and uh, i think i saw more people walking around with beer bats in fayetteville than other places but again with the military population and uh, you know a lot of younger people i think they do pretty well with beer and thirsty thursdays there mm -hmm. and when i was there early in the season they had seth beer 
uh, a top Houston prospect on the team. And there were quite a few people wearing beer shirts, uh, you know, in the style of a jersey. All, yeah, it all seemed um, to get connected there. Yeah. And it, were they huge fans of Seth Beer? Maybe. He was a great player. But I think a lot of people just wanted to wear a shirt that said beer on it. Yeah, it sounds like Fayetteville really good inaugural season and a lot to build on heading into 2020. So moving on to the next team that I've listed from your 2019 road trip stops is the Amarillo Sod Poodles, who moved to the Amarillo area with baseball returning to that area for the first time in quite some time. And you really couldn't think of a better finish to their season as they won the Texas League title, and they ended up finishing second in average attendance in the Texas League with just about 6,300. So a really good first season for the Sod Poodles. I talked to Tony Enzer prior to the season, and it really seemed like they had a lot of momentum going into opening day. So what was your experience like in Amarillo and their stadium, Hodgetown? Yeah, that was probably my favorite place I visited this year. Um, you know, Hodgetown's a really nice ballpark, as you'd expect a new double-A ballpark to be. Um, there wasn't one aspect of Hodgetown that I was like, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. I mean, in terms of just totally being unique in my mind. Um, but, you know, it, it covers all the bases. But what was great about Amarillo and Hodgetown was, you know, this is something I saw in Fayetteville, but it was most pronounced in, in Amarillo with just a community falling in love with a team. I, I can't remember when I've ever been to a place where so many people just seem to be into the team mm-hmm. and the fact that that team existed. And I think that speaks to Amarillo. And, um, you know, it's a fairly decently sized city. Um, you know, I think it's the second biggest city on the, in the Texas panhandle. But, you know, so many people said some variation of to me of, you know, I can't believe we have this team. I can't believe this is in Amarillo. And, you know, I think it's the kind of place where you don't have a ton of, you know, entertainment options, at least on a nightly basis in the summertime, like minor league baseball provides. And I think the community was just kind of head over heels with the fact that this was their town and they had a, a ballpark like this and a team like this, um, you know, really high achieving double a team. And as much as you know, and I know uh, that, you know, minor league baseball at the end of the day, doesn't necessarily live or die on how the team does. It's more about the experience you provide at the ballpark. But that said, uh, fans in Amarillo were really deeply into the game and the players and uh, were just about the most intense and uh, committed baseball fans. And you really saw, Um, I mean, I saw through pictures that for the playoff games that they had, the, the stadium was still pretty full as well. And in a lot of markets, even for new ballparks or teams that have been there for quite some times, you know, playoffs aren't necessarily a huge draw. Yeah, absolutely. But they had a true playoff atmosphere. And after I got, I went to Amarillo in June and, you know, I don't really actively root for any specific minor league team, but I definitely wanted the sod poodles to make the playoffs and win uh, because I knew that it would mean more to that city than just about any other place. Right. And I knew that the atmosphere after having visited there, I knew the atmosphere would be incredible uh, by minor league baseball playoffs. And, you know, cause you know, minor league baseball playoffs, as you said, they're often an afterthought. Yeah. It gets cold outside, school starts, attention turns to football, and uh, there's the irony of even if you're a really high-performing team attendance-wise, sometimes you're playing these playoff games in front of 400 diehards. Yeah. Uh, but, but in Amarillo, it was not the case at all. Yeah, in 2011, when I worked with the Frederick Keys, we had Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope, and a couple of other Orioles' top prospects playing for the Carolina League title. But, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of people there because, again, like you said, 
once those temperatures start going down and school starts coming back, it's not necessarily top of mind. So it was great to see in Amarillo not only them have a really successful regular season attendance-wise, but be able to carry that momentum and really with that community into the postseason. Yeah, absolutely. I was happy for that whole place. I, I was smitten with Amarillo, I got to say. It. Yeah. Um, just uh, really friendly people who just seemed uh, just so exuberant about the sod poodles or the soddies they yeah. call them the soddies yeah i mean i i uh what's it, i remember listening to their sod poodles anthem which i believe was performed live at a number of their games but re- really really neat thing to have somebody from your community create an anthem for your team and if you're listening to this and being like oh that sounds cool you can just pretty much go onto youtube and type in sod poodles anthem and you'll be able to find it there it's a it's a pretty catchy tune. I had it in my head stuck for a couple of days. It's an awesome song, and I did a whole story on the guy who wrote it, Carson Leverett. Spent a lot of time there when I uh, with him, and uh, yeah, you can you can see he did the the song originally when the name hadn't even been announced. It was just one of the finalists, and uh, then when it was announced as a name, he actually uh, he went to Nashville where his sister had some connections in the industry and recorded a studio version. And that studio version is played at the ballpark every day. But Carson's a real nice guy, a legitimately good songwriter. And uh, I think that Sod Poodles anthem just kind of summed up the season in terms of just the grassroots energy that existed for the Sod Poodles. Yeah, and just like I asked you for Fayetteville, was there anything that stood out food-wise, or was this another place where, even though it's new, they kind of nailed the basics? I think it was more like that. I think teams, you know, they... They don't, you know, when you're in a new ballpark, you have a lot of points of sale. You can expand beyond just the basics. But at the same time, in terms of real specific regional or signature stuff, I, f- I find that teams usually need a few years before they really start adding the more right. like, uh, not off-brand, but more like goofy or, or real specific stuff. Um, they had a, I guess it's a, a chain, not one I'm familiar with in the Northeast, but uh, HTO. They had a sweet okay. tea a sweet tea um, stand on the concourse that only sold sweet tea with like 12 different flavors. And that was slammed every night, you know, Uh, in Texas and certainly in parts of the South. Sweet tea is a treasure in the South. Oh goodness. It it is just such a thing. You go to get barbecue and order sweet tea. They'll just bring you out your own mini pitcher. If they don't do that, they're, you know, the waitress is coming by every five minutes, like more sweet tea. And then I love it, but I find it to be a bigger, uh, what's the word? Diuretic than like coffee. I got (laughs) to I don't know how people yeah. in the South drink so much because I'm in the car for like 10 minutes and I'm like, I should not have drank that sweet tea. Yeah. Anyway. Personally, uh, I'm not a huge sweet tea fan, but I can see why people do like it. Yeah, it's sugar water. That's what it is. Yeah, it really is. And I, I do like it, especially at a minor league baseball game at a hot temperature. I think it's mm-hmm. real satisfying. So that was good. They had a Dickie's barbecue. You know, that's a pretty well-known chain. Um, so they had some barbecue out there. Um, you know, some creative hot dogs. I remember they had the Sunrise um, hot dog or the Sunrise dog, which is actually like, you know, breakfast on a bun. Right. It was a sausage with egg and uh, bacon on it. Mm. Uh, not very easy to eat, but obviously a good uh, and country gravy. So it's very messy, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> country gravy but, seems to make everything a little bit more messy. That's and fried eggs. Whenever you have fried eggs on something, the yolk breaks. So, yeah, um, you know, not the easiest thing to eat at a ballpark, but a, a great mix of flavors. And uh, for some reason, I always like seeing fried eggs at a ballpark. It just yeah, something unique to try. It might not be the prettiest thing in the world, but it's not something that you can go and have at a, at another place any any given night. So, 
Uh, that's one of the things that I look to do when I go to ballparks is try something a little bit out of the box that I wouldn't normally try elsewhere. It's one. Of, it's part of the experience. I believe it is, yeah. And uh, even though I can be limited with the celiac disease, I just feel like that's a good approach to life. It's like if you can do something you don't normally do and it's comparatively safe, then do that. Do the thing you have an opportunity to not do. And I realize yeah. the stakes are really low when you're talking about minor league baseball concessions, but as a basic philosophy, I think it's uh, it'll serve you well. Right. It serves one well. It serves me well when I remember to do it, which is most of the time. <laughs> so we moved from Fayetteville to Amarillo, now to the west, to the Las Vegas Aviators, previously the Las Vegas 51s. Saw a pretty significant jump in attendance considering, you know, they had a new stadium and everything. Drew just under 4,800 in 2018, which was 14 out of 16 teams in the Pacific Coast League. But they were first when 2019 was all said and done, drawing 9,299 fans on average. So what was your experience like at the Las Vegas Aviators ballpark? And really, that seems like one of the brands that people really took to. Well, you know, it was quintessentially Vegas, but in a way that you might not think. Um, you know, when you think of Vegas, there is the whole kitschy aspect of it, neon and slot machines and uh, lounge singers and that kind of thing. You will not see any of that branding or any of that aesthetic at uh, Las Vegas Ballpark, the home of the aviators. Um, it's a really unique place. It is top of the line. It's as major league as a minor league ballpark can be. Uh, it's essentially a major league ballpark scaled down to triple A size. Um, you know, I'm talking to you now in a conference room with, uh, chairs with mesh backs and, uh, reminds me of the aviator stadium where, because it gets hot in Las Vegas, as, uh, you probably know, yeah. um, they have every single seat in the stadium has a mesh back. Um, so, you know, it's not nearly as hot when you sit down and, and, and that kind of thing, that attention to detail and yeah. amenities. There's a pool out there, a gig, even by everyone bragging about their video board standards, a huge video board, um, you know, a, an elite club level uh, with great hospitality options. And it's in Summerlin, which is a planned, an affluent planned community uh, owned by the Howard Hughes Corporation on land that was originally bought by Howard Hughes. So it's about 20, 25 mile drive from the Strip. So you're not in the heart of Vegas per se, right. which makes sense because you really couldn't, well, you could build a ballpark out there, but you know, you don't expect a triple A AAA ballpark to be built on the Strip or somewhere near there. <laughs> that so would it's be something. Own, yeah, it's in, in its own unique Summerlin world. And Summerlin's a strange place, being a, a planned community in, uh, you know, in, in Las Vegas County. It's uh, it's an interesting thing. But the team hotel and where I stayed is uh, the Red Rock Hotel and Casino, which is you know, a really nice casino hotel right across the street from the ballpark. And Summerlin itself is a self-contained place if you live there. I, I know, you know, no player wants to be in AAA unless they just got called up there. They obviously think they should be in the majors but if you're gonna be in the minor leagues it's hard to be playing at that ballpark and then being able to live in Summerlin. i was told that a lot of the players have scooters and just use the scooters yeah. to get to the ballpark from a nearby housing in Summerlin, which is a very self-contained universe so i think a pretty convenient place to live and play and uh, do all those things uh, so interesting ballpark and uh, very top of the line howard hughes corporation was there anything other than it feeling like a major league ballpark in a minor league atmosphere that you remember? Well, there, there's the pool out in right field, which it stands out. Um, the overall structure, you know, at the club level and then the press box above that is very sleek and over 
aerodynamic and I was told that it, and it's true. Once I was told, I was like, Oh, I can see that. It looks like the cockpit of a jet with the uh, upper level press box kind of uh, jutting out on the top. And then this very spacious club level on the second level, uh, the, the club level had a test kitchen for celebrity chefs to come in and, uh, you know, be, you know, serve food for the sweet holders and club level ticket holders. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of that at the ballpark of really maximizing the relationships in Vegas, the hospitality capital of the world, and that's what the aviators are really going for, was uh, not the goofy, kitschy aspect, but to kind of be an elite place uh, that maximizes those relationships in Vegas' is a unique status right. uh, as such a tourism and hospitality-driven place, but also where a lot of people live. And, uh, you know, if you come to Vegas, you could I'm sure there are tourists who go to games, but I think their attendance was not because tourists were showing up. It was because a lot of people live in Vegas and uh, we're really into this entertainment option uh, that was comparatively affordable, taking place all summer long, and in a very comfortable place to see again. So we've talked about three different teams that have had new ballparks. Uh, just quickly before we move on to teams rebranding ahead of the 2020 season, one of the teams that rebranded in 2019 was the Syracuse Mets and you visited them. They were previously the Syracuse Chiefs but rebranded to the Mets. And although they finished 13th out of 14th in international league attendance, they still saw a significant jump in their average attendance. So was there anything that they did differently that you might have noticed or is it just because it's a Mets fan area that they saw that jump, do you think? Yeah, I think the Mets affiliation was the biggest reason for that jump. But I also think the team has done really good work over the last uh, five, six, seven years. You know, it had been a community-owned team um, run by the Simone family. And um, they'd fallen on hard times uh, as the 21st century progressed, was using losing money every year. Uh, but then Jason Smurl came in as the GM. Uh, he'd been out of minor league baseball for a while, and he helped inject a more uh, proactive minor league baseball energy into the whole thing. And then the Mets buying the team really solidified the future there, so it's great for the franchise. Uh, the Mets name is not very exciting, but uh, it is you know Central New York, and there are enough Mets fans that I think that did increase the attendance. But meanwhile, I think it was Jason Smoral and his staff still um, just. Pre- going out of their way to provide a, a fun, engaging atmosphere, which I think they've done really well. And uh, they take risks and they're creative and even being owned now by the Mets, it seemed like they were still able to, uh, to do that kind of thing. The night that I attended the game, they played as the butter sculptures, which is a reference to the New York state fair, which is located in Syracuse mm-hmm. because there are butter sculptures are one of the annual uh, attractions at the New York state fair. Sounds fat uh, representing yeah, representing New York State's uh, dairy industry. So they played a game as the Butter Sculptures gave away uh, bobbleheads where the mascot was himself a butter sculpture. You know, pretty goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always a fan of that kind of thing, first and foremost. Yeah. I, I mean, who isn't if you're going to a minor league baseball game? So it was good to see them uh, see some success, really, after being the Chiefs for so long and rebranding in a way that you really don't see at all. You know, you saw teams like the Gwinnett Braves rebrand to the Stripers because because of the proximity to the big league club, they needed to form their own identity. So it's, it was cool to see the Mets rebrand as the Mets and then still be able to see that success that you might not be able to see in other markets. Now, 
another affiliate that has a the same name as their big league affiliate would be the Potomac Nationals, and that is a team that you visited on your final road trip or one of your final road trips for the 2019 season. And it was to bid farewell to the legendary Fitzner Stadium in its 36th and final season. They're going to be moving to Fredericksburg for the 2020 season and be branded as the Fred Nats. Their logos just recently released on MILB.com. But the Potomac National is one of those teams where I got to go to that ballpark a couple of times and have the Fitzner Stadium experience. And might I say, it was probably one of the hottest press boxes that I've ever been in in my entire life. Yeah, I mean, that was a ballpark. I like ballparks like that. As a writer who's looking for hardcore fans and interesting characters, I like places like that that uh, clearly need to be replaced on a business level, on an operating standpoint. I, it was, I've heard it described this way, but it's true. It was it was almost like a glorified high school or low-level college stadium. Right. A lot of metal bleachers, um, cramped concourse um, that, you know, that leaked when it rained and just seemed like there was kind of an air of low-level decay around the whole place, city-owned, and I think it was tough to maintain. It's located in an office park full of government or city or county buildings, uh, kind of off the beaten path. It's mm-hmm. not that whole you know area, nine, Route 95 and all those. Well, it's similar, it's similar to Hagerstown, too, one of the other places that you visited on that trip, who's still trying to get a new ballpark or renovations, really, but not, not in the best place, really, and has a struggling stadium. Yeah, and Fredericksburg is you know pretty close to Woodbridge at the end of the day, uh, but far enough away that there were some Potomac fans uh, who were upset because even if you're 30 or 40, only moving 30 or 40 miles, uh, that's a lot of miles when you're dealing with uh, D.C. area <laughs> traffic. Yeah. Uh, so there were some hardcore fans upset, but at the end of the day, the team's still in the same basic market and uh, in a new ballpark and uh, closer proximity on and off to Route 95. And, uh, yeah, the Fitz, you know, farewell to the Fitz. I, I'm glad I got another chance to visit. Uh, but certainly um, the kind of place when you go there, there is this feeling of, wow. Yeah. You know, it's hard to believe. It was time. It was time. It was, it was beyond time. That was one of those ballparks that pretty much as long as I've done my job, it felt like there was a drive to get out of there. And there were many things that uh, came and went and, you know, right. ideas that got halfway there. Or funding fell through and finally it's working out in Fredericksburg that ballpark's being built right now and uh, if it's not open in time they might play a few early season games at the Fitz but uh, the new era is certainly upon us uh, and it's the Fredericksburg Nationals the Fred Nets yep yeah so I mean I really like their logos for for teams that that hold the name of their affiliate sometimes it's just kind of bland but they really put their own spin on it to to make it look good and, and again, if you're listening and haven't seen it yet, head over to MILB.com. Heck, you could probably just search the Fredericksburg's Nationals and you'll be able to, to see that there. And, and there are a couple of teams that we already know are going to be rebranding or have already rebranded for the 2020 season. Uh, in addition to the Fred Nats, we already know that the Rocket City Trash Pandas will be debuting in 2020. You know, their name is derived from Huntsville, Alabama, which isn't too far from them being named or nicknamed the Rocket City. And the Trash Panda part of it, also known as a raccoon, if you don't know what a Trash Panda is, is inspired by a Marvel character, Rocket Raccoon, from Guardians of the Galaxy. See, I did my research on that one. 
Um, but you and I discussed that briefly in the after hours opener to start things off. Uh, any, any more information on the Rocket City Trash Pandas as we near their inaugural season in 2020? No, not really anything new. I mean, I just announced the name of the ballpark, Toyota Field. Uh, but they, they got way ahead. I think initially they thought the ballpark might be ready in 2019, so they were way ahead with the branding. And then even once the ballpark wasn't going to be ready for 2019, they announced the name way in advance just to get a lot of traction on the brand. Uh, I know they're selling season tickets really well. Uh, their merch is doing incredibly well because it's such a unique attention-getting yeah, It's a good game. logo. Yeah, and uh, they are really poised, I think, for a breakout season uh, in 2020. Uh, you know, the Huntsville Stars playing at Joe Davis Stadium were really uh, struggling for years and years. But you always heard the analysis that uh, Hunts- it's, it wasn't really a problem with the market itself. It was just about having a place to play in which the fans would show up. And, uh, you know, we'll see if that prediction holds once the trash pandas start playing next season but it looks like all indications are yes that they are going uh to prove huntsville to continue to be a strong minor league market after only about a half decade without a team after the huntsville stars moved to biloxi right and so the mobile bay bears will be no longer that is actually the first team that offered me a full-time job at the 2009 winter meetings. Uh, with uh, I believe at that time they were staffed with Mike Callahan, who no longer works in minor league baseball, and Jeff Long were the upper executives there. So very nice people. Sad to see that organization go uh, with their Hank Aaron ballpark and everything. There's a lot of history that they put into that place. But happy to see the Rocket City Trash Pandas entering the picture for 2020. Um, so moving on to the next team, the New Orleans Baby Cakes are vacating New Orleans. Not really a minor league baseball town. They rebranded to the Baby Cakes a couple seasons ago from being the Zephyrs. Didn't really see any change in fan attendance. So they're headed to Wichita. The name is yet to be determined, but the organization has given some teases as to what it could be. We've seen them pose their Twitter as the Wichita River Riders, the 29ers, the Linemen, and the Doodahs, but we haven't gotten a finalist yet. But they did announce in a recent social media post that they are working on something special for November 13th, 2019. So we could be just a few weeks away from hearing a name. Your thoughts on their efforts so far? Yeah, I mean, there's a long history of minor league baseball in Wichita. There was a Texas League team up through, what, 2006 or seven or so, uh, the Wichita Wranglers. Uh, then Indie Ball took its place, and uh, that ballpark that those teams played in, Lawrence Dumont, you know, was built in the 30s. That stadium was actually torn down, and I believe the new ballpark is going to be in that same location or right near it. Uh, I don't know too much about the ballpark that's opening. Uh, looking forward to visiting, but yeah, as you said, right now they're teasing potential identities, just trying to create a constant stir on social media with what it could be. And uh, yeah, I think next month that'll get out there and then they'll be full speed ahead with branding, uh, you know, into black Friday and the holiday season and then get ready for opening day, you know, typical timeline. Three other teams that plan to rebrand include the Missoula Osprey. haven't gotten any much information with regard to any of their name finalists. It was announced prior to the 2019 season that they were going to rebrand, but uh, haven't really heard a lot about that. Have you heard anything about their plans with regard to name finalists or anything like that? I'm not sure what their timeline is, other than that uh, 
you know, it's a short season team, so they won't kick off the 2020 season until mid-June, but something will obviously be in place well before then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure what the timeline is with that. Uh, but, you know, their team's under new ownership, so I think they wanted to shake things up and, uh, you know, just kind of inject a little bit of new energy into the operation. Uh, I really liked uh, the Osprey when I visited a few years ago. Um, so I can't say I'm sorry to see that name go because, hey, I, I like new things to write about. But regardless, um, I think the Osprey name was a good one. And uh, I always liked the angle that actual Osprey lived at the ballpark in their natural habitat, which right. was the only team that could say that, that they had uh, the, the animal they were named for living in its natural habitat at the ballpark. So they will lose that distinction. Right. Another short season team that is rebranding is the Connecticut Tigers changing their name and they will don the city name Norwich instead of the entire state of Connecticut. Their finalists right now include the Norwich Golden Roses, the Mill Mules, the Norwals, the Salty Dogs, and the Sea Unicorns. Do you have a favorite at the moment? Uh, probably Norwals. It's the obvious choice, but you got alliteration. And I mean, a Norwal is a Sea Unicorn, basically. Yeah. So essentially, two of the choices mm-hmm. are just a different. And you pretty way much to... have that annoying Norwal song to be able to play whenever your team scores runs on. Yeah, that seems inevitable. But. Uh, yeah, and I like that they're going to Norwich, especially now that there is another team in Connecticut in the form of the Hartford Yard Goats. But um, in general, I'm not a big fan of state designations, especially for minor league baseball, where you know usually your market just can't be large enough to comprise a whole state. So I like the geographical specificity yeah. of Norwich, and uh, you know there's a history of Norwich teams. They had a franchise in the Eastern League for years. Uh, that was most recently the Navigators. Then that team changed its name to the Connecticut Defenders and moved to Richmond and became the Flying Squirrels, at which point the Connecticut Tigers and the New York Penn League uh, took up operations. And this will be the first time that the New York Penn League team has a name other than the Connecticut Tigers. And, uh, you know, I think whatever they do will be an improvement. I'm looking forward to seeing what they uh, come up with. Yeah. And finally, the last one that I have on the list that you reminded me of, in our pre-podcast text message was the Kannapolis Intimidators. They're revealing their new name on October 23rd, which is just a few days from when this recording is happening. But there was a little bit of outcry when Kannapolis announced that they were going to rebrand since they are more or less named after Dale Earnhardt. So there were a lot of Dale Earnhardt fans not too happy that the name was going to be different. But The organization released a statement saying that they're still going to find ways to pay tribute to Dale Earnhardt moving forward. Any any thoughts of the controversy of Dale Earnhardt and and any possibilities of them moving forward? I think when all said and done, a lot of the time when you see a rebranding, you have that initial fan outcry that kind of dies down by the time you see the new identity and opening day rolls around. And the whole rebranding is in conjunction with having a new ballpark. So I don't think it'll be a huge deal going forward you understand the emotional attachment to the intimidators name but i also think that kind of hindered the team in doing their own branding because they were tied into a nickname and probably some trademark copyright issues they weren't fully in control of i don't know all the backstory but uh, i think this gives them a clean slate to have an identity you know removed from another sporting organization or another individual outside of right. you know the sport in which they play um but I do understand he's a beloved native son uh, from that area, and 
you know, it's tough, you know, when people have pride in that association and you say you're taking it away, I get it. And I think the team knew that would happen, but I think they also knew, especially in going to a new ballpark, they needed to establish an identity uh, that was fully theirs and something new, uh, you know, to create even more excitement. And yes, even controversy. I don't think they were trying to court controversy specifically with this, but as you know, in minor league baseball, you need people talking about you and it can be hard to get a conversation going. And uh, even if the conversation is not entirely positive, as long as uh, you're fully committed to what you're doing and you stay in the news, uh, you know, that's more eyeballs on what you're doing. And then if you can execute and, uh, you know, really uh, have the brand to be a fully realized thing, we see again and again that it works out. So I have uh, faith that in the long run, uh, whatever they're going with, and I'll be writing about it next week, uh, you know, will be the right choice for them. Yeah, and I'm excited to see all of the new brands that we'll see ahead of the 2020 season. I'm sure there might be a couple that will pop up even uh, early in the 2020 year. So, Ben, that about wraps up my questioning for you. You did well. Thank you again for taking some time to come back on the show. Yeah, man, my pleasure. I'm glad I did well. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give it? Um, that doesn't really matter. You did well. Well, I'm going to assume that's a 7.5. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a 10 out of 10. Always, always great information, historical information on each of the ballparks. It's always good to hear, uh, about these new organizations and their backstories. So glad to be able to have you on the show to shed some light on what these teams are doing. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be the world's foremost expert. All righty. Well, hopefully we'll talk to you again prior to the 2020 season and uh, have a great off season writing about some of these new re- rebrands. Yeah, man, that's the plan. Nah, balls, they are nah, balls, nah, balls. In Venice of the Shishkabad.